Today is January 8th, 2021, in the early morning hours. I'm recording this not quite two days after an attempted coup in Washington. It's terrifying to me that we have to debate on social media who did the coup or who didn't do the coup. It's terrifying to me that I have to learn that so many of my countrymen have a very, very tenuous grasp on reality, on basic, basic reality. Now, you might ask why I'm doing this introduction on a podcast where I talk to an ad executive. The answer is because it strikes me that that's one side of a coin. That is, this interview I did is one side of a coin. And it's largely a positive side, although we do talk about politics and we do talk about, I believe he calls them policy choices that we make. Well, I'm wondering if one of the policy choices that we were making, whether we realized it or not, was to set a society up where a good chunk of our people, a good chunk of our working age and working people simply do not have an adequate grasp on reality. And I'm I'm really wondering, I'm I'm actually wondering at what point does this start to show up in society? And that is, if it hasn't already, I'm, I'm sad to say that I probably won't live to see a history made where somebody talks about this time, but they go far enough back to maybe look at some medical reasons that some of these people believe objectively false things about society. And this isn't a new problem. Not anywhere close to it. We we want to blame social media on it, but I, I, I don't think so. I have a book downstairs that's nearly 20 years old. So it predates Facebook. And I'm sure it was written before Facebook. I'm sure it was written prior to 20 years ago, even. But I I have a book that's about, it was published about 20 years ago, where the author talks about how a huge chunk of the population, even then, simply believes things that aren't actually true. And so that shows me right there that this isn't a, you know, a new problem if you want to say that 20 years ago was a long time you know I'm a trained historian if you catch me on the right day I'm not going to tell you that 20 years ago was a long time ago but the thing I do wonder the thing I wonder quite a lot actually is what are kind of the I guess ramifications of having so many people believe things that aren't actually true. 
I mean, and it's so interesting to me that that I'm able to get these podcast guests and I, I learn about some of the problems with local control of education. And it's interesting to me that I learned about some of these problems just before this coup. I mean, I believe in coincidences, I do, especially on this level. But I kind of wonder if, you know, is this sort of like, I don't know, use the right metaphor here. Is it the boiling lobster or is it the iceberg? Or is there some combination of boiling lobsters and icebergs that kind of somebody, some historian can come back to and say, well, if you look at this, this leads to this whole mass delusion that so many of these people have. I, I was listening to a Dan Carlin episode. You, you've, you've heard me talk about him. Those of you who don't know who he is, he's a, he's a podcaster. I, I jokingly re- refer to him as my spirit animal. So I was listening to a, a podcast by Dan Carlin where he talked about what was going on in society. And this was taped a couple of months ago. And he talked about in that episode how he had recorded many, many versions of that episode. And he couldn't quite say it right. And I think one of the reasons he couldn't quite say it right is because when you're looking at the last several years of American history, I mean, I'm forced to call into question actual things that I actually believed five years ago. Like big things about how the world worked and how society worked and and where this country was headed, which direction it was going in, etc. and so on. Five years ago, if, if you'd have said that there would be a coup in Washington, I wouldn't have believed you. I would have thought you were crazy. I would have thought you were you were spitting out a, a plot point of a movie. And then if you'd further told me that actually there's actual video evidence of the police actually letting the protesters or rioters or whatever you want to call them into the Capitol itself and that the protesters or rioters or whatever you want to call them knew exactly where to go in the in the Capitol building to, to Nancy Pelosi's office. Obviously, there was some level of planning and basically orchestration here. But the crazy thing is that for perilously a long time in all this coup, the government, the 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 biggest and baddest military on the planet by far was essentially paralyzed. Now, you know and I know why it was paralyzed. But but still, that's just... You can take a lightly armed mob and invade the capital. That's a thing you can do. That's not... That wouldn't have passed muster at a Hollywood script pitch, okay? 
Nobody would have believed that. And that's important to say. I think the other thing that needs to be said over and over again is that, yeah, okay, there were a lot of the lost and forgotten in this mob. There were a lot of people that were basically like, well, sort of like the people in Fight Club, if you've ever read the book or seen the movie. But also, you know, not only did you have your, I guess your lost and forgotten people that are people are going to talk about ad nauseum for the next God knows how long, but also, there's reports that you had newly sworn in members of state legislatures all across the country. And there's even at least one report of a CEO that was at this mob and, and stormed the Capitol. And you have to start asking yourself, really, you have to start asking yourself the fact that this isn't being talked about in this exact terms by literally every man, woman, and child in this country who's of the age to even understand what that is, if that age even exists, you have to start wondering, the, if this isn't being talked about in these exact terms, how is the narrative of this, you know, coup gonna go? First of all, it, right now, today... At this hour, you can kind of say it was a failed coup, I guess. You know, but then again, I talked to a lady in Venezuela, and she lived through a coup, and she would know more about coups than I would, I'm, I'm nearly certain. But, you know, the thing with coups is that they're fluid. They're very, very fluid things. And they also, it turns out, especially when the coup fails, you end up making very, very strange heroes out of people. Like, for example, Mike Pence had to order the defense of the Capitol. That's something that the vice president never had to do in the history of this country. Because the reason why is, normally it would have been the president doing that. But for some reason... The president wasn't going to order the defense of the Capitol. And also, you know, the reporting is that the various Homeland Security and FBI and CIA, they were involving everybody but the president. And, you know, let's not forget that the president cordially invited these people. For days and days, he cordially invited various Proud Boys and whatever else you want to call it to the Capitol. And I think it's astounding that you can go on social media and see that it was Antifa. Because, I mean, Antifa and the Proud Boys are not the same cup of tea. They don't fight on the same team, so to say. <laughs> so, you know, I hate to be the one to say it, but I mean, America has a problem, and it has a problem not just with, I guess, I don't know if you want to call it right-wing militias, but also it has a problem, I think, with a relationship with reality. I mean, as I've said before, I, I think that's a real serious problem. 
those of you who know me know that for years and years I've been talking ad nauseum about how America doesn't do anything really for its mentally ill. And, you know, I, I had a guest on my podcast that basically, well, that fits in fine with the fact that America doesn't do really anything at all for homeless people. And, you know, one of these days I want to get into an episode where I talk about some of the choices that we're making, what Adam Harrell in the podcast today actually calls policy choices. One of these podcast episodes I want to have is a podcast episode where I talk about the policy choices that we really are making as a country, not not per se you and me. I mean, I'm not making them. But, you know, they're being made in our name, and I think we as taxpayers and as American citizens need to understand what is going on in our country. Because I got to tell you, I mean, if you really study what happened two days ago, it's really easy to see where if a couple of things had happened a little bit differently, that coup might have come off, at least initially. Because, and I don't know if you want to get into the bug feature like, was this a bug or was this a feature of the coup or whatever? But the thing that struck me, the thing that struck me very, very hard was the paralysis that this the army had or the Marines or whatever group of people it would have been that would have dealt with this. Anyway, so there's that. Now, why... In the world, am I talking about all this? In an introduction to a podcast I had with Adam Harrell, this, the founder of an ad agency in Atlanta. Well, the reason why is we talked a lot about the future and we talked a lot about politics, but we left the part of the future out. The part where I think th things happen because of the legacy of what happened two days ago. Remember that when 9-11 happened, nobody really knew what was going to happen for a while. I mean, people tend to forget that the Iraq War happened quite a while after 9-11. And I don't know what's going to happen after this coup. I don't know how this is going to affect our politics or how it's going to affect how we see our government and the relationship to our government. I distinctly remember a day in time when I was taught that the, that the parties, that is the political parties, didn't really matter, that both parties sort of stood for the same thing. I don't know that you can find an adult that thinks that today in 2021. I honestly don't. Um, certainly not a sane adult. And I think we need to talk around another issue. And that is the fact that as this progresses, as time goes on and we're dealing more and more with people that just don't want to live in reality, essentially, 
how much longer are we going to be a country? How much longer is, is this going to go on, this little r Republican experiment? I honestly don't know. I do know that to be a country, you have to have an agreed-upon reality. It's, it's basically in the contract with nation-states that everybody in that nation-state, or at least the dominant group in the nation-state, has an agreed-upon history. And I actually think that's actually one of our problems, is that the dominant group no longer has an agreed-upon history. And I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing, and I'm not saying what that history should be necessarily. Because strictly from a geopolitical sense, I don't know that that even matters. But what does matter is that the dominant group doesn't seem to have, you know, an agreed-upon history, an agreed-upon set of myths that it wants to believe in. And this is an idea that I want to hit on again, maybe in a later podcast. But the point is, is that we're going down this crooked road, and I don't think we intend to split up now, or maybe some of us do, and some of us don't, but I don't think that's a considered opinion. And I think if it were considered today, I don't, I don't think it would be anything but dismissed out of hand. But I don't know if this pandemic has taught me anything. It's that we totally could have done this five years ago. We completely could have had this world where you could live and exist in your home a good number of people five years ago. But I don't think that could have happened ten years ago. So if you project the technology out I don't know. I think eventually there will be a peaceable dissolution of what we today call the United States of America. And knowing what I know today, I wonder if it was anything other than hubris to think that you could have a country spanning the continent. I mean, you know, nation states have to have shared myths. And we don't have a shared myth. And I think that's one of the things that Facebook and Instagram and any social media you want to think on and, and YouTube, I think that's what all that is showing us is that actually when you strip away the mass entertainment and the mass news media that we had become accustomed to, we actually don't have a shared myth or even a shared set of facts. And maybe that's why all this started 20 years ago, because 20 years ago, for those of you that haven't been keeping up with this, was about when the internet really started rolling. Not that it was anything like what it is today, but it became a force in people's lives around about 20 years ago, if not a little bit before. But I think that's when people started kind of separating uh, more from what we had been fed by the mass media as far as our national myths. Anyway, so I thought I'd throw this prologue on, and I'm going to touch on some of these ideas later on in other episodes. I'm, I'm certain of that. But believe it or not, I'm having a good day, and I hope you are too. And 
Enjoy this podcast. All right. See ya. Hello, this is Benjamin Kitchings of the History Voyager podcast. I'm here with Adam Harrow, founder or co-founder at the Nebo Agency. How are you doing, Adam? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You know, it's a, it's a holiday weekend, but the weather's held up and, and been nice for a couple of days. And uh, uh, we're 2020 almost over. So anytime I can say that is a, a good thing. I, I tell you. You, you wouldn't you wouldn't be lying um believe it or not and not with you specifically but i've wanted to have this conversation i started a podcast on march 14th the day the nba closed up um and i've wanted to have this exact conversation not with you specifically but with a person like you because i want to talk about how COVID is going to change the world and how the world's going to change because of COVID. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's a, 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 an interesting topic. Um, and I think it's going to be one of those uh, situations to where a year from now, you'll be able to write an article that says COVID changed everything. And a year from now, you'll be able to write an article that says uh, COVID changed nothing. Um, and, I think that's partially because a lot of the changes are going to take place at the margins. Um, you know, we'll see shifts of a few percentage points and the number of people that work from home or, you know, shifts in uh, the the sort of uh, business models that, that people are working through. And, you know, uh, obviously I think uh, mask usage will be much easier uh, to convince people to do in, in, in future um, outbreaks, even if uh, less severe than COVID. Um, but, you know, this, those small changes of a few percentage points can have huge aggregate in, impacts. Um, so I, I do think it's a fascinating topic. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure over the last uh, eight months, you've, you've noodled on it a lot and, and have some uh, really interesting thoughts on it. Actually, I do. And, and one of the things, the main thing that I think COVID has shown me is how essentially how divided we were as a society and how basically there was a segment that was ready, willing, and able to sit, to, to work from home and to, to live from home and do what they had to do from home and there was another segment that either couldn't do that or didn't want to or didn't imagine the government was going to step in and help anybody or whatever and there there therein lies the strife or however you want to say it um and that's the one thought yeah the other thought is so i have a master's degree in history and because of that I'm able to, or I'm more familiar with being out on the edges of thought than a lot of people. So a lot of people just want a package, mm -hmm. right? They, this is what to do in the event of AIDS, or this is what to do in the event of cholera, or whatever, typhoid, blah, blah, blah. And they don't have the patience or time to deal with experts learning on the fly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know? Yeah. Um, 
Well, and, and I think you, you sort of look at it, uh, and, and there's some trends that I think go into to both of those things that, that you've touched on. I mean, you know, trust in institutions has declined significantly uh, over the past 70 years, um, and, and that decline's continued. And then you have uh, a media media ecosystem that um, allows people to, to live in uh, – you know, would, would essentially be information bubbles, and you have um, partisanship is uh, uh, basically a, a, a zip code determinant at this point. There's very few um, zip codes that, that aren't bubbles themselves. So uh, you, you have these sort of macro trends, I think, that have happened that, that point to, yeah. you know, what you were talking about right there around the strife and around the fact that, you know, you, you had literally – two segments of the population, um, two large segments of the population, viewing this in completely different ways. You you just talked about zip code stratification. Has it gotten to the point yet where you can be, I mean, it has, but has it become noticeable, I guess, demographically, to where you can be an American that you live and you work and you go to school and you spend your whole life essentially in, if not one zip code, maybe similar zip codes. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's almost, I think there's, there's that piece, you know, the, the, uh, the zip code you're born in that is a, a, the best predictor of, you know, the amount of money you'll make or, uh, the, uh, you know, the education that, that you'll achieve. Um, and that's, you know, that's a policy choice that the U.S. has made um, that has some some, some negative effects, um, but it's the, the way things are at the moment. But I think even beyond the zip code, um, you know, people are increasingly surrounded by like-minded people. Um, and when you have folks with similar worldviews, what ends up happening is, is those worldviews actually um, – Harden and, and they reinforce each other. Um, so it's, uh, you, you actually create a little bit of a, uh, a stronger push towards whatever, whatever lean you had, um, gets, gets pushed further when you're, you're surrounded by people, uh, that reinforce your views and think like you. Um, that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly right. It was, um, I had a, I don't know if you heard it, but I had a podcast with a woman in Venezuela. Um, and, um, I forget if it was in the DMs or if it was during the podcast, I think it was during the DMs that mm-hmm. she said something to the effect of, I could be shot for telling you this, but I'm, this needs to get out there. <laughs> and, and yet I also have people that they don't want to talk to me because they call me a dirty Democrat or, <laughs> you know. Like that, it's like, oh my God, how divided are we as a culture that this person in Venezuela wants to talk to me and you don't, and we speak the same language? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it it, it is. Uh, you know, right now um, the world feels very oppositional, um, and I think you know it's uh, it it's. That's partially fed by the the, the media ecosystem that, that that is sort of uh, 
dominant right now. Um, but I think it's also, you know, there's um, low trust in institutions. Uh, it's easier to form, you know, non-hierarchical movements. Um, and because of that, you, you end up having um, movements formed that are generally uh, about negation. Um, you know, about uh, taking a stand uh, against a, a status quo of some sort. You've seen this across the globe, uh, even uh-huh. going back to the, the Great Recession. Um, and those movements of, of of negation are largely formed around a negative viewpoint, and it's not so much coming together around uh, a positive uh, vision and 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 I think those those things are strongly related. I mean, what you you have is um, a shift towards populism and a, a shift towards populism in a very aggressive way. Okay, let me ask you this. Um, let me ask you to tell on yourself for a second, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. It won't be terrible. I promise. Uh, <laughs> is there anything? Okay, I'm sure there is. Was there? Okay. Let's 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 pretend like I'm doing one of my COVID podcasts like I always like I used to do. All right. When did you become aware of COVID nineteen as a thing in the world? Uh, I remember my brother talking about at that time it wasn't called COVID nineteen, um, but uh an outbreak in China um early in twenty nineteen. Um and I I didn't pay very much attention to it. Um, or early in uh, 2020, uh, yeah. like in January. Um, and I didn't pay much attention to it. Um, you know, my view was like, oh, it'll probably be like H1N1. Um, that was sort of my frame of reference. Um, so. H1, uh, it's funny you say that. H1, I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't mean to interrupt. H1N1 is what we call the Spanish, what we call the Spanish flu, which. They now believe killed half a billion with a B people. So that's yeah. ironic. That's yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking of the the swine flu. Um, <laughs> is what I, was I, of. I I know what you thought. You, I, well, I know what you thought you were saying, but I just yeah. think that yeah. un- unintentional funny. Moment. Unintentionally, yeah. Uh, I guess I. Uh, <laughs> uh, what, what do they call that when uh, the the slip of the tongue when it's revealed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, something more illuminating. Uh, um, yeah, but I, I was thinking of swine flu, so I, I thought it would be similar to that, yeah. you know. Um, it's just the, the idea of a pandemic was something I, I knew about, that I, I knew smart people had warned about, but in my head, the risk calculation wasn't as as strong. Um, so then, you know, uh, things started to uh, get worse. Uh, February, obviously. Um, everyone sort of took notice. Um, and then in, then in March, um, early March, uh, obviously things really hit the fan. Um, you know, we, we closed our, uh, we, we went to complete work from home in our company in early March. Um, the week, the day actually, uh, that we shifted everything to work from home, um, I found out a few days later that an employee that I was in a meeting with um, had uh, been diagnosed with with COVID-19. So immediately, you know, right when everything went uh, was in quarantine uh, for two weeks, and luckily uh, didn't uh, didn't end up getting it. 
And then, you know, we had a few scares throughout the summer. So it, it became real very quickly. Um, but, you know, it was, it was that late February, March when I think the world sort of stopped and suddenly overnight the way we lived and worked changed. Okay. For point of reference, the NBA closed up on March 14th. Uh, and I was out to supper with a buddy of mine. And I distinctly remember everybody's phone buzzing at exactly the same moment. And so that's, to me, when it became serious. All right, now I'm going to ask you a question that I've been thinking about a lot. And I've been on other people's podcasts and people ask me, what did you think going into a March 14th and beyond world? either about America or about whatever, that you now realize was a a mistaken thought? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think I was... um, I was pretty skeptical that we would handle this well. Um. That being said, I remember having numerous conversations um, about, you know, how bad will it get? And in my head, uh, I thought, you know, there's no way we get above, you know, 50,000, 75,000 deaths without, you know, uh, um, some some major response and mitigation that would, would slow things down. Um, I thought there would just by sheer uh, sort of social uh, necessity and, and need, there'd be much tighter coordination um, across all federal levels of government. Um, so even though I was skeptical, I never thought it would it would get to the point it's got gotten. Um, as we moved into you know later March, April, et cetera. Um, I think those those views changed pretty quickly, especially once we got into summer. Um, and, and you could see that, hey, that winter is going to be probably um, a, a really bad time. Um, I was also – I was not confident that there would be the level of fiscal response from um, the, the federal government that we got. Um, I, I honestly – uh, assumed that, you know, just based on the, the prior of the, the Great Recession that, you know, uh, the CARES Act and things like that would be much smaller than they were. Um, but I think, uh, that, that's probably the, the only policy success was in that realm. Uh, everything else has been sort of a, um, a, a dismal failure, especially from a public health perspective. I think I I don't know if I've said this on my podcast, but I'm pretty confident I've said it on other people's podcasts. The thing that the thing that I thought on March 14th that I don't think today is because I have a master's in history and because when you study history formally you study it 
and they give you a bent. Okay, there's a, a subconscious bent to the history that you're taught or to the history that you're able to learn. And the bent is that America rises to challenges, right? Mm -hmm. So I thought that, you know, if you can put a man on the moon, and if, you know, if you can put a man on the moon, and, and if my great-grandmother, who who I don't think, I don't even know if she finished all the school. I know that she probably finished all the school that she had available to finish, but I don't know that she was able to go to the, I guess, she would have gone in the 11th grade. But the thing is, if she was able to convince her people not to go to Brunswick because Brunswick had the flu, like surely we would be masking up and and there would eventually, the government would come in and, and pay businesses to close or, you know, at least do a deal for restaurants and hotels and that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's what I thought. Yeah, I did not think on March 14th that that this would happen, that you would have basically next to nothing, um, which is, to me, it's just like, oh, my God, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say that the, the one thing that coming out of this, I did, I, I thought the vaccine timelines would take a lot longer. Um you know, the, the fact yeah. that, you know, um, the, it, it, and in some ways you're, you're speaking about America always rises to its challenges and that narrative arc. There's, there are certain sort of narrative arcs that, that fit the, the, the mental model that we have of, of American greatness. I mean, uh, Catalin Carrico, you know, she was a, a young scientist and a mom and she came to the U.S. Uh, from Hungary you know, 30 years ago, wanting to study the, the possibilities of mRNA and had, you know, a few dollars in her pocket. Um, and for 30 years, she was mocked and denied grants and demoted. And she kept at it. And, and her research is one of the reasons we got an mRNA vaccine so soon. So I do think there are, there are these sort of green shoots of um, exceptionalism that happen in what is undoubtedly a, a, a very tragic overarching story. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm free I freely admit that I totally got wrong that we would rise to the challenge as a as a I think we the people, like we little little we has helped each other out infinitely more than the government has. I honestly think that. You know. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know, at, at the late at the neighborhood level, you've seen sort of folks come together, and and, and you've seen um, the, as you said, the the little we, the the people helping people, um, the the highly local um, response in, in, in some ways has been uh, really uplifting. Uh, in others, it's it's been you know it's 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 been stunningly inadequate. And I mean, I think such a great contrast is, you know, you have all of Midtown Atlanta cheering healthcare workers, but at the same time, uh, you know, until uh, summer, you know, there are shortages of PPE constantly. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you have yeah. to, uh, you know, uh, uh, I have a friend that likes to say the, the future's a policy choice. 
And I think that's largely true. You know, we, we, our, our budgets reflect our priorities and, um, how we responded to this is, is reflected in the priorities of, of, you know, where money was spent in, in many ways. Um, and I, I do think that, you know, uh, as much as they were criticized, things like, uh, you know, the, the paycheck protection program, things like that likely did, um, stave off a much worse economic situation. Um, but the, there was a, uh, there was, the response was largely unequal and, um, I think, uh, it was bigger than I thought it would be. Um, I think, you know, this, the second round is, is much needed because, uh, folks in a lot of industries are, are still hurting and as slow as the vaccine rollout is going, uh, they're going to need more help. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right. Um, so, let me um do you think the um this whole work from home thing like do you think that'll continue like post pandemic or not yeah i mean i think work from home sort of the when you when you asked me about how would covid change things the the work from home piece was the first thing i thought about um so i think We'll see that trend continue, but I think it's largely going to be an acceleration of a trend that was already existing. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be this time next year, everyone will still be working from home. Um, I think what we're going to see is a, a shift of a few percentage points, but a shift in a few percentage points is still huge. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the term Zoom towns. But, you know, uh, yeah. places that are relatively accessible, um, to, to major metros, but have, you know, some sort of quality of life amenity that makes them really attractive. Um, you know, you can look at the migration patterns to a place like, uh, Missoula, or you can look at a Mad- or, or Bozeman or, or some of these places and home values, you know, have essentially doubled in the past year. Um, and it's, uh, I think, I think we will see some shifts. Um, I think you'll see shifts from superstar cities that were extremely high cost. Uh, you know, the Bay Area's uh, obviously been hit, New York's been hit, et cetera. Um, I think you'll be, see a shift from uh, tech firms uh, largely that have uh, grown and become established. Uh, you know, they'll try to move their operations to, to lower cost metros. Um, I, I think those trends will continue. Those trends are already happening a little bit, but I think COVID accelerated them, um, and I think those those will be permanent. Um, that being said, you know, uh, once once a, a house in Montana is a million dollars, it's it's not that much better of a deal than the Bay Area. Um, you know, if I was 22 years old and looking to uh, to to make my mark in uh, the world from a, uh, an economic standpoint, a superstar city is probably not a bad place to look right now. Uh, they're, they're cheaper than they've been in a long time. And, uh, you know, uh, the New York, the, the San Francisco is, uh, those cities, uh, are going to attract a, a new class of, um, people that'll be young and, um, pioneering and, and there'll be some creativity unleashed over the next 10 years there, uh, which will, which will be interesting to, to watch. You know, I think, they became islands of millionaires, largely. Uh, so, yeah. Hopefully I mean, that'll change. 
Yeah, I mean, like, I'm renowned among my friends for going to a party during the Great Recession, right after the Great Recession, actually, and saying that the sad fact is that a house, a house only costs so much money, and and anything above that, you have an investment vehicle, and eventually it gets too expensive to sleep in. And I'm amazed how many people remembered that, and even people that weren't even there have heard it <laughs> talked about it. But like, uh, you're in, you're in Metro Atlanta. Can I say that? Can I say you're in Metro yeah. Atlanta? Okay. Yeah. yeah I'm in city. Of Atlanta. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm in Metro Atlanta too. And I remember, uh, 19 or 18, the home values were just, it was fun to be on Zillow and look at the home values. I mean, like, Good Lord, how much, how, how much is that? I remember going yeah. past the house in Tucker. I'll never forget this as long as I live. Going past the house in Tucker right there on, uh, um, you know, uh, La Vista Road, this little, uh, wood-sided house on La Vista Road right there. And it cost a million dollars. And I'm like, that's, that's not, that's what a million dollar house looks like in 2019, huh? Get out. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, um, in, in Atlanta, you've seen obviously home values have, have gone pretty crazy. Um, especially in, you know, certain in town neighborhoods. Uh, obviously you've seen, um, you know, uh, other neighborhoods that historically, um, have been underpriced and uh, largely underserved from a, 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 a amenity standpoint. Um, yeah, those shifts have happened pretty quickly. I mean, you have Bellwood Quarry, which is the new park getting ready to open up on uh, the west side of town near the Howe Mill uh, corridor over there. That'll um, change things, and obviously, home values have really started going up there over the past five years. And then you have Westview and uh, West End and, you know, the Southwest Beltline that opened and, and shifted things. Um, and I think the this is – we're going to end up in a situation to where people that have their home – have equity in their homes, as you said, it's a, at this point it's the biggest investment vehicle most uh, folks have, families have. Um, people that have bought are going to see – uh, the next 10 years, um, their household finances in, in pretty good shape from an equity standpoint. Uh, the challenge is the cost to buy your first home, the cost to form a family, the cost for, uh, you know, child care. All those have gone up so much that you have to look at it and say, hey, is, is Atlanta um, going to be a place, you know, one of the best cities to, to raise a family in? And I think – um, that's going to be the challenge for for Atlanta is how do you maintain um, how do you maintain a city that that isn't just for you know folks that are 25 and willing to work 70 hours a week that it's a it's a it's a place where folks can you know plant a flag and raise a family and um, buy a house and, and and build a life and be a part of the community long term. Well, also I think that description of Atlanta I think to me I mean. Well, my mother, my mother's people are from here going all the way back to 1810, right? They they literally walked into what is today considered the, the excerpts of Metro Atlanta. So, I mean, to me, it, it's kind of funny in a way that 
somebody think of Atlanta as trendy. To me, it's just yeah. home. <laughs> yeah. You know? And, um, to me, like, but the thing, the thing I always kind of, I was like one of the only people in my group of friends back in the day that was saying, yeah, okay, when these toddlers get to be like 13, yeah, if they're still here, then I'll believe it's permanent. Okay. You know, these toddlers you're seeing yeah. at the park. You know, and, yeah. <laughs> it's just amazing to me. Like, um, so do you think in the suburbs, do you think that's going to, one of my friends said, I, I wonder if the, the suburbs are going to be having shake shacks now. Cause all these people, <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, I think they already do probably, but, um, I, I do think that what you're seeing is a, and you've already seen it, honestly, you've seen the places that started in, on the west side of town in 2010, um, you know, or, or, uh, in Midtown or, uh, in those areas, uh, you're, Bacados, Antico Pizza, all those, you know, now they're at the Battery in Cobb County. Um, you know, the the suburbs are going to continue to be uh, a key area of growth. Um, and the suburbs today are different than how people think of them. You know, the suburbs are some of the most diverse places in America right now, uh, especially in Metro Atlanta. They're growing more diverse. And uh, the the type of neighborhood and the types of amenities that people want are similar to what they they could get in the city in which you know they want uh walkability they want restaurants they want green space you know they want all these things um mm. urban type mm. amenities but in a suburban environment um, yeah so I, I i do think as you said the future of uh the suburbs of atlanta is maybe it's a uh, a taco truck and a shake shack on every corner with uh you know uh, cold brew coffee. Uh, cold brew coffee at the dog park. I, I tell you, when when Shake, Shake Shack goes to Cartersville, then then we'll uh, we'll know something happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, you know, you might get like a Bacato burger and H and S burger first. You might get one of the local Atlanta chains. That, uh, well, that's okay. Okay, it just hit me who I'm talking to. Is there such a thing in the ad? Do you guys in the ad will do you talk about? Like, there's a leading, like, if you get this kind of thing, that's how you know the money's coming. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I don't think, you know, from from that standpoint. Um, what I will say is that there's definitely a tipping point of when you see, from what I've seen in Atlanta, for instance, uh, and I think it goes back to your point of, like, it costs only so much to build a house. Um, but it becomes a tipping point at which neighborhoods hit a certain price value um, and then it, development just floods in. Um, you know, once a single family home uh, in an in-town neighborhood can sell for $400,000, um, then it's, the math starts penciling out a lot easier for people to do, you know, flips and rebuilds and remodels. And, you know, houses just start falling like dominoes. And I think you've seen that pattern happen over and over again in, in Atlanta over the past 16 years. Um, and, you know, that's, once once that accelerates, that's a really hard thing to stop. 
so in turn so in terms of like products or in terms of stores or whatever that you see coming into a i mean let's call it what it is into a gentrifying neighborhood uh what what's that leading edge store or product that you see coming in oh I don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know the, the answer to that one. You know, I think, uh, oftentimes it's, you know, uh, historically you'd see things like, um, uh, sort of, uh, the lower cost, but culturally cool, um, uh, folks coming in and starting businesses. And a lot of times that would be, you know, art collectives and galleries and, uh, folks that attract, uh, you know, young zip kids. Um, yeah. and then you have like the, the trendy restaurants and, and, and those sort of things. And the reason they go there is because they couldn't afford the already established areas. Um, so you have these folks that, you know, generally get pushed out or can't establish in, in one area. And then, you know, they establish in another and, and, and that's where, um, they right. can develop and, and, and grow. So I think uh, the the culturally anything that is culturally cool um, is a, a sort of leading ed- indicator of what the next hip area is going to be because it'll start with you know 25 year olds drinking cheap beer and then you know before you know it the the home values start to rise and you, you see that process of uh, art and culture leads to commerce and coolness leads to all this other stuff well, what I, noticed, I think that's a process what i noticed and this is back in my drinking days but what i noticed was and i hit it on it accidentally and then i started looking for it um but what i noticed was the further back you have to go in the liquor store for the vodka for the regular vodka not the flavored stuff but the regular stuff that's when you know the neighborhood was really gentrifying. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I noticed maybe that. the the number of brands of whiskey, you know, like how much how yeah. much high end whiskey do they have? Yeah. 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 No, seriously, that's what I would notice. Or like, um, like uh, what was this? There, what was that burrito place? God, it's been so long now. But there was a burrito place that was a uh, uh, Willie's. Yeah, that's it, Willie's, <laughs> which is um, basically a better Moe's for those that don't yeah. know. <laughs> um, anyway, so what do you think the new hot areas are going to be in a in a pre in a post pandemic world? You know, actually, I think in in some ways, some of the more interesting things are going to be happening uh, in. Uh, in places that uh, have previously been unappreciated. I mean, I think uh, the the west side of Atlanta, the Howe Mill Corridor has been so developed that now everything's starting to shift down to the west end and west area, and I think that'll continue. Um, you see the, the sort of hip breweries opening up there. Um, but I also think you're going to see um, Atlanta's now at a point to where that creativity starts happening uh, in the suburbs. Um and you start seeing more of that, uh, those urban style amenities in, in the suburbs and, you know, the walkable downtowns, all those things. 
Um, and I also think you're going to start seeing the rise, and this is already starting to happen to a large extent, the rise of these second-tier cities in the South becoming um, destinations in their own right. Uh, own right. Um, Birmingham comes to mind. Greenville's already there. Chattanooga's already there. Um, but I think, uh, you know, a, a place like Birmingham, as Atlanta continues to grow and develop, is going to really benefit from that um, uh, that that flow, um, that migration flow shifting. And that, you know, there'll be college kids that graduate from some school in the southeast, and they look at it and say, man, I, I want to live, you know, in some uh, cool old downtown in the city. Uh, I could go to Atlanta. I can't afford Midtown. I'd have to move out to the suburbs, but I could buy. I could get a place in Birmingham for under a thousand dollars a month, you know. And you start to see some of that shift and and some of that energy um, move to uh, a place like uh, uh, yeah. a, a cities like Birmingham. Um, so I'm I'm pretty bullish on those second tier southern cities. Uh, they have good bones. Uh-huh. No interstates ran through them. You know, there's some. Uh, there's some interesting things that uh, uh, I think that can happen. Yeah, as the high speed internet goes, well, and that see that's the thing is like as the high speed internet goes, people will travel. Yeah, yeah, they will. Uh, One of my friends was yeah, uh, a friend of mine was talking about um, San Francisco, and and uh, he said, you know, who would have thought that if you um, if if you rooted or you you tied your city's success um, to uh, ruthless overachievers with no local ties uh, that were very monetarily driven, that they would leave when the money no no longer made sense. You know, like they're not tied to this place at all. Uh, they're basically mercenaries for hire from a workforce standpoint. So of course, you know, they have no tie to the, the city. They're they're going to leave when they can, uh, and and that sort of led to these rise of Zoom towns. Um, which is a slightly different phenomenon, but uh, I think, you know, for a city to really um, be sustainable long-term, uh, it has to to be a place where you can plant roots, become a part of the community, you know, build a life, raise a family. Um, okay. And I think the cities that do that will will do well. All right. Here's a, here's a question that you would be uniquely qualified to – have a take on. Um, I have talked to folks all over the planet. I have talked to people in this country, in Canada, in lots of other countries. And all the Americans and all the Canadians, well, all the Americans except one, and all the Canadians seem to think at some point in the future, social media, mainly Facebook, is going to disappear. Meanwhile, all the people all over the rest of the world love Facebook. They think Facebook is the best thing that ever happened to them. Uh, you know, it's a, and I use the Messenger app now that I have a podcast and I'm able to talk to folks all over the planet. And I think that's amazing. But I think Facebook itself, if it doesn't change, it's going to disappear. Um, what do you think the future of Facebook is going to be? Um, no, I think Facebook has proven itself to be um, a pretty ruthless corporate competitor. Um, so I think, you know, things like um, their acquisitions and, and you know, uh, rolling 
uh, things in the to messenger and, and, and growing that and scaling, um, they're going to continue to, to scale um, and find try to find ways to, to scale and deepen ties and, and, and do all those things. Um, I also think that they have no ideology. Their ideology is, is, is purely self-interest um, and that as the parties in power shift and the regulatory nature shifts, um, they're going to bow to those winds pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and I, I think at this point they're um, a 900 pound gorilla. Uh, they're they're going to be around for a while. Um, the question what was that? <laughs> um, the question I think is, uh, you know, what, what happens, uh, what happens from a regulatory standpoint and, and, and where does that end up? Well, I mean, I have a friend that says it best. He says, uh, people are going to get, t- he said the normies are going to get tired of, of arguing with people they have to pass the peace to. Right? Yeah. And I think he's totally right. I mean, I promote my podcast on Facebook. Uh, I would not be on Facebook if it weren't for this podcast. I don't believe. I'm literally, it just, it's amazing. Some of the, if you promote a podcast or promote any sort of IP on Facebook, it's amazing the, the, how the, well, let me just say it like this. It's amazing how my country has, has, uh, failed the mentally ill. And if you come off the garden path of Facebook baby pictures and what your friends are doing, it's really amazing how crazy some people actually are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that where Facebook is wanting to go long term is, you know, trying to create these sort of group driven things. Um, so the, I think as, as they, they've shifted from, Hey, we're all about a, a timeline and, and sharing updates from your friends. Um, now they've tried to shift the model to be very group focused. Um, so, you know, their bet is that the neighborhood school creates a Facebook group and that drives engagement. Um, and occasionally people will go on there to connect with the, the parents and the grandparents and post some pictures. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's, the the days of you know what's on your mind as sort of the the Facebook prompt of you know people sharing and, and engaging um, those those days are um, somewhat uh, in the past and I don't know if they'll they'll ever get back. Uh, I agree. I think uh, to your point of the crazies, I mean, you look at the comments on. Uh, Facebook, uh, Facebook ads or, or paid posts or boosted posts or things like that. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's pretty shocking. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, I, I think in general, I mean, I could media, give, yeah, it, an unregulated sphere tends to lead to a lot of bad actors and a lot of grip, <laughs> um, and a lot of misinformation. I mean, I could give you the what I call, Super Bowl commercial answer of Facebook is becoming the phone company for the third world. 
and I've certainly had conversations with people in Singapore and places, and I'm privileged to call those people at least acquaintances. But at the end of the day, does that balance out the fact that my cousin got in a fight with a very close friend of mine over something that Kasim Reed said to the point where I had to unfriend my cousin? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Yeah, I mean, you know, I think to your point of the, the phone company for the third world, I'm a, you know, uh, there are countries where Facebook is the Internet. Um, you look at a, a country like Myanmar, and, and the Internet is basically Facebook. You know, they went to Myanmar and said, hey, we'll, we'll basically provide your, your, your infrastructure for the Internet. And uh, if you're a country that had low adoption prior, largely because you were, you know, a authoritarian regime, then Facebook is much easier to control. So that's, that becomes the, the platform. Um, so I think there's a lot of moral hazard with, with Facebook. Um, but I also think they're so profit-driven and self-interested that under a proper regulatory regime, you'd see them shift very, very quickly. So you they actually do whatever they can get away with. So you actually think Facebook will be regulated? You you know you think it'll or you think it won't be? I think that's that's yet to be determined. Um, I think the odds are are better that we'll we'll see some shifts there, um, but uh, they have not proven to be wise from the standpoint of how do we self-regulate? Um, you know, they, they have to be pushed. Um, and I, look, uh, do, do I think it's a, a guarantee thing? No, but I could see, uh, I could see some, some shifts and some um, investigations and, and, and pressure politically uh, to, to make some changes. Um, now, yeah. How lasting will those be? How effective will those be? I don't know. Um, but I do think they'll get pressure. I think the the last admin, they they had a, a pretty free ride, and in this one, it won't be as much. Yeah, and and I think the admin before that too. I mean, if we're talking about Obama. I think they had a free ride for the first two, and then you know, and and also, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the phone company was somewhat regulated. And mm-hmm. if Facebook is going to be the phone company for somebody, you know, connect the dots. Just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, um, all right. So is there anything, um, that we haven't touched on that you'd like to talk about? No, I mean, I think we, we, we touched on, um, you know, uh, a lot of the, the the pieces that I think are, are likely to stick. Um, I think the, the 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 thing that you'd originally reached out to me around was a, a discussion on the restaurant industry and some of the shifts we're seeing there. Um, and I think that overarching shift towards um, the the unit economics, the the ability of uh, a one-person business to exist is becoming increasingly easier. So moving from, you know, a, a, a star player to a, a well-known brand to sort of a um, an independent um, uh, entrepreneur is, is going to increasingly happen, whether that's in restaurants or media, et cetera. Um, 
So, I mean, I think all those things were already underway, but those shifts are continuing to accelerate. You know, the the chef that spent a few years at a well-regarded restaurant and goes off on his own, it's much easier now for him to create a business um, and, 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 you know, uh, exist as a, an independent entity doing, uh, you know, high-end to-go dinners, the, the, the sub-stack model of journalism in which a, uh, a writer, uh, you know, spends a, a little bit of time at the Atlantic or Bloomberg or New York Times, builds an audience, and then, you know, moves off on their own and uh, builds a subscriber base. Um, the challenges with those is, you know, you largely get superstar economics in which, you know, the, the biggest benefits reap to those with the biggest names. Um, but I, I think that'll continue to, to happen even post-COVID. And I think there'll be some shifts in the dining industry and the restaurant industry that, that last. I think one of the biggest uh, shifts, depending on how long this goes, is I think if people start if if people start getting deep fryers, right, the way we have stoves, the way we have microwaves, I really wonder if you're going to have. I I think that's going to do a lot of damage to, especially fast casual places. I really do. You know. Yeah, I mean. I- I think the to-go experience is going to be one where a lot of companies, the I think fast casual will probably be even more uh, hit. Um, yeah. I, I think you're going to see, there's going to be a portion of restaurant and grocery delivery that, that sticks. Um, I mean, and that'll lead to some changes in the business model. I mean, all you have to do is remember 2008, there's a whole class, there's basically a whole level of restaurants now that basically the only ones that remain from that are like Applebee's and, and, uh, let me think. Gee, Applebee's, maybe Cracker Barrel. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's yeah. a whole level. No, there's no, a no, whole, yeah. There's gonna, there's gonna be, uh, the restaurants that are still around, uh, when things finally calm down, you know, let's say it's, it's next summer, um, there is going to be a dramatic increase in demand, um, and there's going to be a reduced amount of supply. And, and, and I think those, uh, the, the restaurants that can make it through and hold out and we're able to survive on, you know, shifting their, their model to outside dining and delivery and to go and, and all those things, they'll probably be in a pretty good place in, uh, a year from now. Um, but along the way, there's going to be a, a a lot of empty shells that are that are left. Yeah, I, I wonder if I mean we said it, we were talking about Shake Shack. I mean, like Five Guys, I just read went out of business. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, read that the other day. Anyway, yeah. Adam, um, this was great. If you just hang on just a second, I'll hook the recording.